0: Sketches from Scripture Presents After God's Own Heart A teaching series from the book of Samuel At the end of the book of Judges, the author writes, In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Israel was a nation, but not a kingdom. The spiritual leaders were corrupt and aloof and the nation wandered far from God. Thanks to the desperate prayer of a woman named Hannah, her son, the prophet Samuel, became the leader, priest, and judge of Israel, and God called him to anoint a king, one who believed, acted, and ruled after God's own heart. Will a king unify an adulterous nation and bring them back to the Lord? This is the story of the book of Samuel. Tonight, we'll be looking at 1 Samuel chapter 3. So if you are following along in your own Bible or in an app or something like that, go ahead and turn to 1 Samuel 3, and we'll be reading from that in just a moment. Uh, thank you, everybody, for watching and for um, for listening. Those of you who are listening on playback or podcast or you know going back and listening to this later, not live, if uh, you're enjoying these, if you're learning something, if they're encouraging to you in any way, please share them. I would like for as many people as possible to um, to, to hear these and to and to share them. So, um, looking at First Samuel chapter three tonight, and so go ahead and and turn over there. So, not much to review uh, just yet. We've only read the first two chapters of 1 Samuel, but in it we saw Hannah's prayer and Hannah's worship, and then we saw uh, Eli, who is the priest, and his sons, Hophni and Phinehas, and how they are um, not good guys. They're being very selfish, they're being very godless, and Eli is not doing a whole lot about it and things seem to be in a little bit of disarray. So I'm going to read 1 um, Samuel chapter three, make some notes about the text, draw some application, and uh, then we'll be done this evening. So um, I'll just pick up and we'll just go ahead and read, get get right under the text. This is 1 Samuel chapter three, I'll be reading from the English Standard Then the Lord called Samuel and he said, here I am and ran to Eli and said, here I am for you called me. But he said, I did not call lie down again. So he went and lay down and the Lord called again, Samuel and Samuel arose and went to Eli and said, here I am for you called me. But he said, I did not call my son, lie down again. But Samuel did not yet know the Lord, and the word of the Lord had not yet been revealed to him. And the Lord called Samuel again a third time. And he arose and went to Eli and said, Here I am, for you called me. Then Eli perceived that the Lord was calling the boy. Therefore Eli said to Samuel, Go, lie down, and if he calls you, you shall say, Speak, Lord, for your servant hears. So Samuel went. And lay down in his place. And the Lord came and stood, calling as at other times, Samuel, Samuel. And Samuel said, Speak, for your servant hears. Then the Lord said to Samuel, Behold, I am about to do a thing in Israel, at which the two ears of everyone who hears it will tingle. On that day I will fulfill against Eli all that I have spoken concerning his house from beginning to end. And I declare to him that I am about to punish his house forever for the iniquity that he knew, because his sons were blaspheming God, and he did not restrain them. Therefore I swear to the house of Eli that the iniquity of Eli's house shall not be atoned for by sacrifice or offering forever. Samuel lay until morning. Then he opened the doors of the house of the Lord. And Samuel was afraid to tell the vision to Eli. But Eli called Samuel and said, Samuel, my son. And he said, here I am. And Eli said, what was it he told you? Do not hide it from me. May God do so to you and more also, if you hide anything from me of all that he told you. So Samuel told him everything and hid nothing from him. And he said, It is the Lord. Let him do what seems good to him. Uh, That would be Eli speaking there. And Samuel grew, and the Lord was with him, and let none of his words fall to the ground. And all Israel, from Dan to Beersheba, knew that Samuel was established as a prophet of the Lord. And the Lord appeared again at Shiloh, for the Lord revealed himself to Samuel at Shiloh by the word of the Lord. And the word of Samuel came to all Israel. Okay. Just wanted to go on into verse one of chapter four, probably belongs better with the end of chapter three there. So that's first Samuel chapter three. So let's just talk about uh, a few things from the text, and then we'll talk about sort of the theme of this chapter. So uh, in verse one there, it says, Meanwhile, the boy Samuel served the Lord by assisting Eli. And so it's worth noting how Samuel spent his time, that he was assisting the priest. He was assisting uh, the Lord, right? So um, notice that it doesn't say he served Eli. It says that he served the Lord by assisting Eli. And so Samuel's work always was focused on the Lord. Also in verse one there, it says, now in those days, messages from the Lord were very rare and visions were quite uncommon. Well, why might this be? Well, you got to go back and read Judges to find out why. So what we talked about last night was that really the whole Bible is one story. And really from the beginning of Genesis all the way through until the end of Kings basically is one unbroken, continuous story. And so after uh, Deuteronomy, you have the Israelites crossing the Jordan into the promised land under the leadership of Joshua. So you have the book of Joshua and in Joshua chapter 18, uh, if I recall correctly, the tabernacle settles in Shiloh, which is uh, where this story is taking place here in 1 Samuel 3, that the tabernacle is there in Shiloh. The tabernacle resides at Shiloh, I think for 369 years so. Um, not quite 400 years that the tabernacle is there. So you're talking almost 10 generations. Um, so something like um, uh, nine, eight or nine generations, something like that. Um, so um, the, uh, after the book of Joshua, you've got the, the stories of all the, the judges and all the things that happened through there. And now uh, then you have the story of Ruth, which is a really beautiful story. Uh, One of the best, most beautiful poems ever written. And it sets up so beautifully the story of David, which uh, Book of Samuel eventually will become. David's still still a ways off in the story so far. But um, so for now, we have uh, Hannah has had her prayer and now Samuel is here. And this is continuing just this. Continuous story from Adam and Eve, Abraham, Noah, you know, Noah, Abraham, uh, Jacob, uh, Judah, Moses, and now here we are, Samuel. One continuous story. So, if we want to wonder, if we're wondering why um, messages from the Lord were rare, visions were uncommon, because that's something that we saw a lot of when we, especially in the Genesis series, and we saw God speaking quite clearly to Moses and Aaron and some of the others there in the camp during the wandering. We saw a lot of that previously before Joshua and Judges and Ruth. And now here after Joshua, Judges, Ruth, we see that there are no communications from the Lord, that they're very rare, that visions were quite uncommon. And so what's going on? Why did that happen? Well, if you go back and look at the very end of Judges, it tells you everything you need to know. The last verse of the book of Judges uh, Judges chapter 21, verse 25 says, In those days, Israel had no king. All the people did whatever seemed right in their own eyes. <laughs> it tells you everything right there. When you do what's right in your own eyes, you are your own God. And so what need do you have for the Lord? Sad, sad place to be. And uh something for us to think about maybe a little later. Uh, In verse two, it says one night, Eli, who was almost blind by now, had gone to bed. So I want you to focus on, especially in the early verses of this chapter, the focus on uh, vision, on sight, on seeing, on eyes. This is something that we've seen before back in Genesis. So remember, the Bible is all one story and the authors are constantly borrowing and referencing other stories and other books to draw parallels. And so when you see themes being used in one place that calls to mind when that theme was used in another place. So here, just like in Genesis, you see these themes of eyes, vision, sight, light, darkness, night. You see all these themes happening, and that should bring back everything that we learned about Genesis and pack it into just a few verses here at the beginning of Samuel, uh, 1 Samuel Chapter 3. So when it says that one night Eli, who was almost blind by now, right? In fact, I think uh, the version that I read, it has, um, uh, it says it like twice, right? Um, It says, uh, I'm going to have to reload my, reload my Bible. Um, But it, it mentions his eyes growing dim and that he's also, he can't see. I mean, those are the same thing, but it mentions it twice, right? And so the reason it does that is because it's trying to really hammer home this thing. It's at night. His eyes are dim. He can't see. In the nation of Israel, there's been no vision, right? Visions are quite rare. That word vision being related to this theme of sight. And it also gives us a time frame here. It says in verse three, the lamp of God had not yet gone out. So the lamp of God is that menorah, that uh, lantern that's there in the temple, supposed to be constantly Uh, going on. Now, there's going to be a time, remember, this story is written after the events that it's writing about, clearly, right? I mean, that's pretty much every story, right? It's like um, Mitch Hedberg, the comedian, said, uh, uh, here's a picture of me from when I was younger. Hey, man, every picture of you is from when you were younger. If you had a picture of you from when you were older, I'd be like, hey, man, where did you get that camera? So same, same thing with the writing, right? So any of the stories that we're writing, they're going to be after the events that have taken place. Unless, of course, we're talking about prophecy or some kind of future prediction, some kind of word from the Lord, something like that, of course. But most of the stories, a large part of them, are things that have happened in the past. What that means is that even at their first hearing, at their first reading, the first audience would already... Be familiar with the events that are going to transpire. This is another reason why we take all this time to look at the storytelling. Because, okay, so it's like, I, I like opera. I don't like all operas, but I like opera. One of my favorite operas is Turandot by Puccini. Um, it's kind of a love story. It's kind of a strange love story. I could tell you the whole story of Turandot in five minutes or less and not really leave anything out. So if I can tell you the story in five minutes, why in the world would I go sit for two hours and watch the opera Turandot? Well, because I want to see the sets and the costumes and the music. The the, the music is my favorite part. And I want to hear every note of it. And then I'm going to walk out singing it and I'm going to buy the CD and I'm going to listen to it again. Right. Why? Because I because I forgot the story. No, because I enjoy experiencing the story. Right. So when you already know what's going to happen. If you're listening, you're listening. There's some other things that you're listening for, right? So yes, this is a historical document and we should look and find history in here. But for the first audience, they were pretty familiar with the history for the most part. So the story is then telling them something that's a little bit above the history. It's it's giving them something a little more than that. And that's what we're really after when we're looking at the narrative style here. So when we examine all these things, we're looking at the light and the sight and all these kinds of things. When it says something like um, the lamp of God had not yet gone out, the first audience already knows that that's going to happen. That's something that's, that's going to basically take place in, in the next few chapters. It's a foreshadowing. And so the audience hearing it, understands that foreshadowing and actually holds great weight and kind of is a big omen for the events that are about to transpire. Now, we don't see that because, number one, we, we're we not really trained uh, in our Sunday school and in our listening to our preachers and that sort of thing. We're not really, really trained to pick up on literary type things. Like we we do that in English class in high school, but we don't do it at church. And it's a shame because all the stuff that they talk about in English class, you know, or literature class in school, all those things can be applied to scripture for it is writing. It is a story. It's by the the greatest author of all time, the one who authored uh, Heaven and Earth, right? So we should take those same tools of study and we should study scripture in that way. We should look at those things. And when we do, then it's going to reveal something to us a little larger. So one reason we don't pick up on things like the weight of that f- statement, the lamp of God, the lamp of God had not yet gone out. we don't pick up on that weight because number one, we're not really trained to see it. Number two, we don't really have the context. Most of us listening are Christians, we're in America, right? So, We think, oh, yeah, I guess there was some kind of lamp or something in the temple. And was that supposed to go all the time? We don't even know. I don't don't even know. We, We don't we don't understand the significance of it. Right. But think think of if this were a story that were set in New York City and someone said, you know, everyone was on their way to work and the towers had not yet fallen. Okay, now you understand the weight of that, because we remember the impact of that moment on our culture. Right, And so the first hearers of 1 Samuel 3 remember the impact of the events that are about to transpire. And so this uh, first few verses really is laying it on thick, this, this sort of dark cloud, this omen over what is about to transpire. And yet there's this bright light here just before it all takes place in young Samuel and his listening and his obedience. And so again you see all these uh there's no vision there's his eyes are dim there's no sight it's at night all these dark things that are applying to Eli that are applying to the nation of Israel that are applying to where the temple happens to find itself not the not the tabernacle itself not God himself of course but uh, the tabernacle is in the midst of this darkness because you have a a, a lawless people That where even the priests are doing whatever seems right in their own eyes, they're blaspheming, they're terrible, they're adulterous, and their own father does nothing to stop them. So lots of setup here. It's easy for us to just read past that, but oh man, it's so rich and it's so well written. We really need to take a look at that. So um, let's um, one thing we can contrast this with this phrase, the, the lamp of God had not yet gone out. Zechariah chapter four. So if you go all the way towards the end of the Old Testament, you get to Zechariah chapter four, there's this vision, and uh this angel of God is showing a vision to Zerubbabel, and he's showing a um a, a lamp where there's these um this olive, these olive trees that are pouring oil. There's so many olives on these olive trees. They're just pouring oil and the oil is basically going directly into this lamp. And there's a, a river running between the trees. So the trees are staying watered and the oil is continuously coming out of the trees and the lamp is continuously lit. The, the The picture that's being painted there in Zechariah chapter 4 is a lamp that will never go out, a lamp that will be an eternal flame, an eternal light, something that will go on forever. So you can contrast that image of, of light going on forever with all these dark things and the lamp of God had not yet gone out. Okay, I think we've given that uh, sufficient uh, weight for the time being. So uh, it says that Samuel's uh, sleeping near the ark and that he's sleeping in the temple. Now, he he's not yet a priest. Eli and his sons are still priests. Uh, Samuel is a Levite. He's working there in the the temple, but he's just sort of an assistant. He was just a boy also. He certainly wouldn't have been sleeping in the Holy of Holies. So what this means is he's just around the tabernacle somewhere, possibly just outside or maybe uh, in the courtyard. But he's close enough to Eli, and he just assumes that it's Eli who's calling him. Verse 7, it says, Samuel did not yet know the Lord because he had never had a message from the Lord before. So this is kind of similar to Eli thinking that Hannah was drunk As we've looked at last night, maybe because he'd never seen someone truly pray to the Lord. So he didn't know what he was seeing when he witnessed it. Samuel, likewise, having never experienced an encounter with the Lord, and of course, being around Eli and Eli's sons, he would have been totally ignorant of what communicating with the Lord would have looked like because he had no one to model it for him. Uh, Didn't even know that it was a thing that was possible, right? So the Lord breaks his long silence and speaks to Samuel, speaks to the, to the young boy. Uh, verses 11 through 14, the Lord confirms to Samuel what the man of God has already told Eli at the end of chapter 2. So this man of God comes to Eli, gives him a prediction of some things that are going to happen. And the Lord tells Samuel, we don't see any knowledge that Samuel heard about the story at the end of chapter 2. Samuel doesn't seem to be present for that. It's possible, but um, e- e- either way. Uh, the, the the vision that is given to Samuel confirms what was told to Eli by uh, a man of God. So now Eli has had this this omen sort of given given to him by the man of God and now by Samuel through the word of the Lord at night. Uh, verse 15, uh, this is right after Samuel hears, you know, has this vision with the Lord. Verse 15, Samuel stayed in bed until morning. Then he got up and opened the doors of the tabernacle as usual. Uh that that I just quoted there is from the New Living Translation, so it's a little more modern translation. But basically, the point is Samuel stays about his business. Okay, he has this really life-altering experience of being able to speak with the Lord. It says the Lord came and stood there. It's almost as like like Moses did, speaking face to face with God as a friend, and uh, has this life-changing experience. And yet, in the morning, he gets up and opens the doors. Of the tabernacle. Now, notice it says he opens the doors of the tabernacle and not he pulled back the flaps of the tabernacle. And we'll look at some pictures uh, in our next lesson on Thursday night of why that would be. But at this point, the tabernacle had been in one place for so long again, close to 400 years, 369 years. Uh, The tabernacle had been in one place for so long, they had built up stone walls around it, had fortified a lot of the things. It wasn't traveling anymore once Joshua settled down in Shiloh in Joshua 18. And so uh the the courtyard and all that was more of a a building at this point. So even though the tabernacle the tent was inside there was a lot of stone structure around it. Stone structure which uh a lot of a, a lot of has survived to this day. And we'll look at some pictures of that on Thursday. I've been there and it's very cool. Um so he got up he opens the doors of the tabernacle probably the outer doors of the courtyard so that people can go in and out and do their business. But the big point here is that Samuel just stays about his business. He's assisting Eli. He's serving the Lord. And this life-changing experience he's had the night before doesn't slow him down. Uh, Verse 19 and following, um, you know, it says, uh, As Samuel grew up, the Lord was with him, and everything Samuel said proved to be reliable. And uh, and so on and so on. So basically the point is it's confirmed over and over again that this was not just a one-time event but that the Lord apparently continued to come to Samuel and these things continued to come true, even though the very first thing he's told Samuel hasn't come true yet. It's going to in the future chapters, right? But again, the first hearers already know that that is going to come true because they're well aware of what happened with Eli and his sons. So uh, again, God is just confirming over and over again by speaking to Samuel, telling Samuel, giving him some kind of special knowledge. And then when those things come true, Everyone sees it and witnesses it, and they recognize that Samuel has been made a prophet by the Lord, that the Lord is speaking to Samuel. It's clear to everyone else that Samuel is a prophet. And so then we uh, contrast that um, that final verse there, that verse 21, with, um, with the very beginning. If I can get back there now that my Bible's loading. So verse 21 says, The Lord appeared again at Shiloh, for the Lord revealed himself to Samuel at Shiloh by the word of the Lord. Go back to um, in the very beginning where Samuel's ministering to the Lord, but the word of the Lord was rare and there was no frequent vision. And so now we've started at a time when there was not a frequent vision. And now we've ended at a time where there are frequent visions and they're all coming to one person, to Samuel. Okay, so that's some notes there about. Uh, the text. So there's a really kind of difficult thematic theme that is happening in 1 Samuel chapter 3, and that is the idea of prophecy or hearing from the Lord. In fact, you may have heard other believers say things like, Well, I think the Lord is telling me this, or the Lord told me this. Uh, maybe you've had someone come up to you directly and say, The Lord told me, you know, X, y, Z. I know in high school, the Lord was telling many boys that that they were supposed to date these girls, and the girls. It's interesting; almost none of the girls had been told about it by the Lord, <laughs> but all the boys, for some reason, were just real sure about it. And uh, I don't think any of those couples ever got married. So, not sure who was actually telling these boys these things, but it doesn't seem to be the Lord. So, you've you probably possibly had different kinds of experiences with this. I personally have had people, I don't think I've ever had someone, I've had people share things with me through email or text message or something and say, hey, I was praying and this was really on my heart and I believe the Lord wanted me to share it with you and here it is. And I've actually got screenshots of, of one that I go back to every couple of months and and look at because of some things that are um, that, that are going on in there that I need to continue to to listen to and to think about and to pray about maybe I'll say more about that in a minute but um but it brings up this theme of uh do we hear from god today is god speaking to us in the same kind of way that he did in scripture and um you know what's the right theology there and and what does the bible have to say about that and those kinds of things we're we're in a you know limited amount of time here to get into a very complicated subject something that people have been debating in various forms for Thousands of years, so we're not going to be able to solve it tonight. But let me break down some things that we can talk about. So first of all, there's kind of three possible camps on this idea of of God speaking to us or, or hearing from the Lord. And so there's the cessationist view, there is the continualist view, and then there's what I'll kind of call the fence straddler view, where you get some of the you get a little bit of both. And, um, so here's what that looks like in the cessationist view, that would say, uh, someone who, who we might classify as a cessationist again, I'm doing broad strokes here, but, um, they would say, you know, God speaks to people very rarely and we have records of pretty much every time that that's happened, it's called the Bible. And now that we have the Bible, we don't need prophetic revelation from the spirit. And so, after the events of Book of Acts, that has largely gone away because now we have the gospel, we have the Bible text, we have canonized Bible. There's no need for those kinds of things anymore because we have a Bible. That's sort of the view of a cessationist, and there's lots of scriptural things that you can point to to support that view. Then you have the continualist view that says something like, um, you know, in 1 Corinthians, Paul talks about spiritual gifts. And 1 Corinthians chapter 12 in verse 7, he says, you know, spiritual gift is given to each of us so that we can help each other. And he lists lots of spiritual gifts there, some of which most people would readily agree, uh, are still active today. But then there are things like speaking in tongues and prophecy that we say, I'm not sure what that's about. And uh and yet in 1 Corinthians 14, he tells these early Christians desire the special abilities the Spirit gives, desire these gifts, especially. The gift of prophecy, especially the ability to prophesy. It's in 1 Corinthians 14, 1, I believe. And um, 1 Corinthians 13, in between those two verses, 1 Corinthians 13, 8 through 13, says prophecy will end. But it the end is always sort of referred to in the future tense as uh, at the end of the age, whereas faith, hope, and love will persist in the next age. So you can imagine when we're all finally with Christ, we still have our faith and trust in Him. We still, uh, are, we are finally realizing our hope and we are certainly full of love in Him. All those things will persist, but there will be no need for things like speaking in tongues because we will all speak the language of the Lord in His holy city. And there will be no need for prophecy for every knee is already bowed and every tongue already confessing that Jesus Christ is Lord. They will end because they're no longer needed because perfection has come. And a continualist would say if it had not yet come by the time of Paul's writing, then it's not yet come today. Nothing has changed since the time of Paul's writing to now. All right. Paul began writing years after Christ ascended. And so between Christ ascending and Christ returning, things are, the status of the world is basically the same. And so that's sort of the continualist view. Okay. And then in the middle, you have sort of the, um, Hodgepodge view, which says, um, you know, miracles and prophecy were necessary to kickstart the church uh, because those signs showed the people who that the people who were teaching had authority and were being sent from the God that had power over demons, had power over evil spirits, had power over sickness and death, and these kinds of things. And so the things you see happening in the book of Acts are things that happen when the gospel is really picking up steam for the first time in a certain place. And it's hard to conceive. uh, It's hard to believe. But even now in the year 2020, there are still places where the gospel really has not gone in mass yet. And there are still places that need to be reached with the good news of Christ. And there are still places where the church is really just beginning, places in India and China and Africa. And so sort of this middle ground view might say, just as they were needed in the book of Acts then, they're needed in India and China and Africa now, because the church is being kickstarted there now among many people, especially among people who are largely illiterate. But there's no need for these kinds of signs because uh, in the West, because we have the church, we have the Bible, we have a history of theology, uh, and those kinds of things. So that's sort of what a middle ground would say. So you've got um, the cessationist the combo and the continualist. This is a very challenging thing to think about. And really, you could point at different scriptures and and prove any of these, I I think. Uh, And and so proving none of them, right? Um, So I, I don't really know what else to say about it except to just talk about myself. So, again, I'm talking about myself here. I'm not saying that this is the truth. This is just where I find myself looking at Scripture and based on experiences that I've had personally. I I find myself falling more into a continualist camp. So, um, um, So, there are many Pentecostal churches that practice the idea that Hey, you're not saved unless you speak in tongues because that's the sign of being baptized by the Holy Spirit. And until you speak in tongues, you can't teach class. You you know you're not really saved. These kinds of things. I don't think that that is scriptural. I just, I know why some people. I know where that belief has kind of come from, but I I think that is not a scriptural teaching. I think that Paul, who is the, the only one that talks about um, speaking in tongues, outside of that happening in Acts two um i think paul um you know he says um that that different gifts different people have different gifts and some will speak in tongues and some will prophesy and some will be preachers or what you know all the other gifts some have the gift of discernment these kinds of things and so i think uh paul would never say everyone will speak in tongues that that that's a fact he he basically says that in his scripture so so i don't take that kind of view where um you know all these giant signs and things that we see in the book of acts are going to happen all the time in every case and we can just will them out and treat them sort of like magic and and these kinds of things certainly don't don't believe that don't take that view but i don't i i I don't think I, i i do think the lord wants to communicate with us i mean why else would he have made a universe why else would he have made a a scripture for us to know him why else would he taught us about prayer why 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 would he give us the holy spirit if if the holy spirit cannot be seen felt communicated with Uh, what does it mean you know and so i just have a lot of questions revolving that and around that and so i i believe that the lord does want to communicate with us somehow I, i need a lot more study on it and um I need to study scripture more on it, and I need to cl- more closely examine some of my personal experiences as well. Scripture, of course, getting the first and last word always. Um, So I, I don't say that to provide any answers for you. I just say that to, to say, yeah, I recognize all the difficult things that this text brings up. I feel them myself. I'm sure you feel them as well. So in our last few minutes here, let me run down some of the things that we can walk away with. From this text in Samuel, some things that we we probably can be pretty certain about based on this text. Um, And before I get into this list, I want to just say one other thing. Samuel is a very special person in history. For the Lord to go a long time without speaking to anyone and then to choose Samuel and to raise him up as a prophet and leader over the entire nation of Israel. that's, That's a special guy. And we should not think that what happens to Samuel will happen to every single one of us. You know, what I'm saying like we should have a little humility that the Bible's not about us. It's for us, but it's not about us. And that when we read the story of Samuel, we shouldn't expect that God's going to come and whisper to us and speak to us tonight. He very well may, but, um, we should not expect it or demand it just because it happened to Samuel. Samuel seems to be specifically chosen for a very important time in history and that's God's prerogative. So I do need to, uh, preface everything with that. But here's some things that I think that we can learn from what happened to Samuel. First of all, as I said before, Samuel was faithful in his service to the Lord. So this began with his mother's prayers, and it continued with his life of being obedient to the existing revelation of the Lord, known as the law, the Torah. Okay, so that was written down. They had this in copies, and they, they were supposed to obey it, even though Eli and his sons were not doing a very good job of it, and thus the rest of the nation of Israel were not. But it appears that Samuel was. He had the existing revelation of the Lord, and as much as he knew about it, he seemed to be obeying it and was going about his business. Uh, Number two, the Lord chose to speak to Samuel. Like I said before, this is no small point. Why did he choose to speak to to Samuel? Why did he um, eventually speak to him? I mean, we can only speculate, but we see that God did it for his own story, for all the people of Israel. He doesn't come to Samuel. And give Samuel an offer. He comes to Samuel and says, I have something that you need to tell Eli. And it's going to determine the course of, of the rest of the nation of Israel forever. There's nothing about Samuel in that at all, right? So uh, the Lord, it was his choice to speak to Samuel. Number three, Samuel was mentored by Eli, nevertheless. Uh, Samuel was mentored to listen to and obey the voice of the Lord. And side note, his obedience was not based on the character of his mentor. So characters can ha- mentor mentors can have faults in their character, and there's still something that we can learn from them. So just because you have parents or church leadership or something like that that may not have the strongest character or may have a weakness in their education or in their um, understanding or their application, that doesn't give you a free pass, okay? You can have someone who's flawed in character as your mentor and still learn to listen and to obey. Um, number four, Samuel listened to and obeyed the Lord. So he was mentored to do that, and then he did it. See, that's, the, that's another thing is a lot of times we we hear what we should do on Sunday mornings, but then Monday through Saturday, we don't do that. We spend most of our time Monday through Saturday not sinning, but you know, if we're told to share Jesus with somebody, did we did we do that? Did we did we work towards that at all Monday through Saturday? Did we think about that in our interactions Monday through Saturday? Oftentimes not. So not only was Samuel mentored, but he actually listened to and obeyed that mentoring. Samuel did not let this prophes- this prophecy either inflate or deflate him. So he wasn't uh, depressed and terrified by it. And he also wasn't haughty and uh, stuck up about it rather he went about his business serving the lord number six samuel honored the lord and obeyed his mentor by telling the truth and delivering the word of the lord so when samuel did hear something that was to be shared with somebody else he was obedient in doing that even though it was not great news for eli samuel was a little boy trying to honor eli may have thought um, not giving this bad news might be um the way to honor him but even eli says You need to tell the truth. And Samuel honors both the Lord and Eli by telling the truth. Number seven, the word of the Lord was confirmed when it happened. So um, the very first thing that the Lord tells Eli has not taken place yet, but we know that it will in the next couple chapters. But there were all these little things along the way we learned there at the end of chapter three, where the Lord keeps coming back and the people recognize that he's been made a prophet. How do we know? Because Lord tells Samuel things, and those things come true. Uh, number eight, the Lord confirmed this gift over and over again to many people. So it wasn't just a secret between Samuel and Eli and the Lord, but this was done in front of lots of people. So there was really no question that this was something that was happening. So there's no distortion of facts. There's no guessing. It was It was very apparent. Okay, so what does this mean for us? We'll kind of go back through those same eight, thing, eight things and we'll um, convert them into something for us. So what does this mean for us? Number one, be faithful in your service to the Lord. Second um, Timothy 3, 16 through 17 says, all scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for teaching, rebuking, for correcting, for training in righteousness so that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. So continue in your good works. Be faithful in your service to the Lord. And honestly, I could end the lesson right there. Most of us need to just hang out right here for a while, because why in the world would you expect God to bring you a miraculous message? You know, sounds fun, doesn't it? But why would you expect that when you've got 66 books of scripture that you've yet to obey, right? So I could stop right there. Most of us just need to hang out there for a while, but I'm going to keep going if you'll hear me for a few more minutes. Number two, the Lord chooses when he will speak. First Corinthians 12 and uh, 11, Paul's talking about spiritual gifts. And he says, one in the same spirit is active in all these, distributing to each person as he wills. So it's the Lord's choice. You can't force the Lord to speak to you. You can't rush him. It doesn't happen when you want. It's not a magic incantation. It's not a bell you can ring. It's, um, you don't uh, clap your hands three times and get a word from the Lord. It's not how it works. So first, the choice of the Lord. Three, get a mentor, preferably one who knows something about listening to the Lord and obeying the Lord. First Timothy chapter 18, see Paul writing to Timothy says, Timothy, my son, I'm giving you this instruction in keeping with the prophets, with the prophecies previously made about you so that by recalling them, you may fight the good fight. So here he is mentoring Timothy to remember all the things that the Lord has told him in in growing up. And here's the thing about mentorship. God wants you to be discipled. And if you can't obey that, which is tangible and simple to discern and understand and scriptural, easily readable, if you can't obey that, why would he give you a special prophecy? Get a mentor, be discipled. Number four, listen with your heart, mind, soul and strength. Ephesians 5:10 it's the end of a phrase here but it says uh, testing what is pleasing to the Lord. Test what is pleasing to the Lord. In other words, there's things that make God happy. And we should see if the things that we're doing are pleasing the Lord or not pleasing the Lord. And so uh we should listen. 5. Prophecy isn't from you. So when you get a word, you know, for somebody Uh, If that's something that's happening, it's not from you, right? And also it isn't for you. So when you see prophets in the Bible, it's not necessarily God telling them something for themselves. It's God telling them something to tell someone else. As you see here in this instance with Samuel and Eli, the word was something that Eli needed to hear and it's Samuel's just the vessel to deliver it. It's not about Samuel. And so, if the Lord speaking is something that happens today, many times I think we want God to speak because we want God to explicitly tell us the things that we need to do so that we don't make mistakes, so that we can avoid rejection, so that we, we can avoid failure, so that we can avoid hurt. We want it for selfish reasons, we want it for ourselves. But prophecy, it's not what it's about. Prophecy isn't from you, it isn't for you, it's not about you. Uh, 1 Corinthians 14 29 through 33. Paul says uh, again in the section I'm talking about spiritual guests and how they're to be used in the church. Paul says two or three prophets should speak, and others should evaluate. So again, he's saying, hey, other people should listen in and say, yeah, this is somebody who regularly has something to say that we believe is from the Lord. This person, well, you don't know who he is. Let's let's see how this goes. Two or three prophets should speak, and others should evaluate. But if something has been revealed to another person sitting there, the first prophet should be silent, for you can all prophesy one by one. So that everyone may learn and everyone may be encouraged. And the prophet spirits are subject to the prophets, since God is not a God of disorder, but of peace. So in other words, hey, if people are prophesying, it's not for them. You know, it's it's not about them. It's for the people that they're talking to and it should be done orderly. It's not about making a show. It's not about you having magic powers, or some ridiculous thing like that. Number six, honor the Lord with obedience and boldness. I don't know how many times we can say this, <laughs> but again, we should really camp out here. I've got a big section, James chapter four, one through 8 I'm not going to read the whole thing, but you can go read it there. And uh, it's basically James saying, hey, you have all these problems. It's because you don't obey. You don't listen to God and you don't obey God. And so I would summarize that by saying you have scripture. Listen to that. Obey that. Then worry about if God's going to give you some kind of special revelation. Number seven, give the Lord time to do his thing. Um, first Thessalonians 5, 19 through 21 says, don't stifle the spirit. Don't despise prophecies, but test all things and then hold on to what is good. So give the Lord time to do his thing. Don't rush things. Don't be like Moses and Aaron with the rock that we read about in, uh, numbers, right? Because they, uh, strike the rock and the Lord says, what's the sin there? You didn't let me show my holiness, this is what the Lord says. So you don't want to be like that. You want to let the Lord do what He's trying to do, and you will just be obedient to the things that He uh, has for us to do. And uh, lastly, number eight: If a prophecy is a gift from the Lord, then it belongs to Him. So, so do the praise, the glory, the honor, the respect, the fame, etc. So, uh, Zechariah. 4, 6. I mentioned Zechariah chapter 4 earlier, where there's the, 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 the trees and the lamp and the lamp that's got burning the eternal flame. And what happens right after this is the angel says, do you understand what's going on here? And Zerubbabel says, no, I, I don't explain it to me. And so this is Zechariah chapter 4 and verse 6. So he answered me, this is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, not by strength, not by might, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. So, um, if prophecy is going to happen, it's not going to be because we tried real hard, because we were so good that God granted us the ability to know the future. It's not going to be anything like that. That's nothing scriptural about that at all. But instead, it's going to be because God's spirit is working in the world and um, wants wants us to, to to do something. So, we've got a lot of humility and a lot of obedience and a lot of listening that happens way before any kind of special revelation from the Lord might even think about happening. So, summing up, here are the things that we can't take away as we are here in this space between Christ ascending and Christ returning. Going back through these eight things, we need to be faithful. We need to wait on the Lord. We need to get a mentor and be discipled. We need to listen with all our heart. We need to remember it's not about us. We need to obey, listen and obey. We need to be patient. And finally, we need to give God the credit. Um, I know I'm going a little long here tonight. Forgive me. I've got one more thing that I want to show you. It's a little four-minute video clip. And I'll just set it up by saying this. Um, Prophecy, like we're looking at here where the Lord appears to Samuel and gives him a very special word for somebody else. That's a it's a very special thing. And, and again, like I say, I, I don't know for sure if that's something that happens today or not. I, I think that it is. And I have reasons for thinking that, but uh, I'll, I'll let that go at that. But a uh, little P prophecy, the sharing of a word from the Lord with someone else is something that ought to happen every day for each one of us. Every day, we ought to share something that we've learned from the Lord with another person as a way of encouraging them for our fellow Christians as a way of of disciplining them and strengthening them and uh, warning them, even scripture uh, commands us to do. And so um, I'm just thinking a lot tonight. My heart is heavy uh, about Brother Ravi Zacharias. I don't know how many of you have heard of him. This is going to be a little difficult for me to talk about, Um, but uh, he's really a hero of faith to me he's a giant and um, I've learned so much from listening to him to his sermons and his podcasts I've never met him I think I got to hear him in person in Memphis one time but I honestly can't even remember if if um, if that's true or not but I, th- I think that I did hear him in person back in my when I was 21 22 um, but I feel like I've heard him in person a thousand times because I've listened to so many of his stories. I've shared some of his stories in some of these lessons. Uh, He's had back trouble for many years. And recently, when he was undergoing back surgery, they found cancer that was very advanced. They've tried treatment, and um, they're now out of treatments. And he has been uh, sent home to be with his family. And if you get on uh, Twitter and possibly Facebook, you'll see this hashtag, Thank You Ravi. And uh, it's just people like me that have benefited from uh, who Ravi is and from his teaching and from his bringing the word of the Lord to other people. Um, his ministry has spanned decades and has changed, you know, how many people's lives. Um, it's difficult to know how many people are Christian or Christian still Christian because they listened to somebody like Ravi and what not many people knew until uh, just a few years ago he shared finally shared his personal testimony something that he had not shared for a long time. Uh, at age 17 he attempted suicide and it was through that experience, that he came to know who Jesus was. And um, so before I show you this clip, I'll just leave you with this. If you think that prophecy, that the sharing of the word of the Lord is not critical and important, as critical and important today as it was in Acts chapter 2, then Um, then I weep for our culture who does what's right in their own eyes and goes about in darkness with no vision or word from the Lord. And I would encourage us all to have the boldness and the obedience of this man, Fred, who shared a Bible with Ravi on his deathbed at age 17. I'll leave you with this clip. I love you all. I'm praying for you all. Uh, This clip is about four minutes, and we'll be done after that.
1: I marvel at the fact that at the age of 17, when I'd never cracked open a Bible on my own, the previous year, a little bit of exposure had come. Prior to that, never opened a Bible. I'm not even sure. We had one in the home. I think my dad had one. But I'm lying in a hospital bed. you know why? Because I wanted out of life. My life had no meaning. I wanted to be a cricketer. I wanted to play tennis. I did it well, but I would never have excelled to the ranks of the best. So I wasn't even going to make it there. I just did it, played at a university level. That was it. And as I'm lying in this hospital bed, having attempted to take my own life, A man walks in with a little red Gideon's New Testament. I couldn't reach out for it because my body was dehydrated. The moisture was gone. It was a servant in the house who rushed me to the hospital. And my mother takes that Bible that he gives, and she says, you really can't stay here. My son is in critical condition. And he said, ma'am, your son needs this more than anything else. And so he opens to John chapter 14, where Jesus is talking to Thomas. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes unto the Father except through me. And then he goes on in verse 19 and says, because I live, you also shall live. The power of the word of God to crack open this encrusted heart of a young man who'd never had the wisdom to open it before. And I begin to pray. And I say, Lord, if you are the Lord of life, Take me out of this hospital room. I will leave no no stone unturned in my pursuit of truth. That day is so vivid in my mind. Every time I go to Delhi, my home city in India, I always take a taxi and I go and park outside that hospital room and I just saw the hospital building and I just sit there for about 10 or 15 minutes and recall what happened when I was 17 years old. Happened with the word of God. Happened with the word of God. And as I walked out of there, five days later, the doctor looked at me and he said, You know, young man, we've given you back your life, but we cannot make you want to live. I just said, Doctor, you don't need to worry about that. I had that little red New Testament, and I walked away from that room. The man who brought that New Testament into my room died last year. I spoke to him a few days before he died from our home in Atlanta. He was living in Los Angeles. I wanted to come over. He said, Rob, don't, 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 don't. He said, you've got many, many other things to do. But here's what he said to me. He said, I just want to say to you, I sit down sometimes and watch you on YouTube, and the tears run down my face. And I think to myself, the main reason God brought me into this world was to bring that Bible to you. I said, Fred, God brought you into the world for a lot more than just that. He said, no, man. He said, I just want you to know, I can't say enough of what it means that you're one of my sons in the faith. And it gives me the greatest amount of joy. My word is true. My word is true. If there is just one application you take away from tonight, can I urge you to open the scriptures and make it a commitment to read the Gospel of John.
0: Sketches from Scripture is a production of Parabolos, the production company of author and filmmaker Paul Andrew Skidmore. Subscribe to this podcast and more at skidmore.substack.com.